Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. After almost five months into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the geopolitical situation is becoming clear in Eastern Europe. The war is likely to be protracted and hard fought. With unexpected Ukrainian resistance and a Russian military struggling with the realities of urban warfare, the conflict is now expected to stretch on into the future. A renewed Russian focus on the Donbass, which refers to a large coal basin covering much of the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, has led to fierce fighting and extensive damage to infrastructure. Today I'm joined by Klaus Dodds, Professor of Geopolitics and Security from Royal Holloway University of London, and Michael Bradshaw, Professor of Global Energy at the Warwick Business School, to discuss how the war in Ukraine will influence security in Europe and energy supply across the world. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Klaus, what is the up-to-date security situation in Ukraine? So I think at the moment, uh, what are we now, sort of four, three or four months into this conflict, um, I think what we can say is it's got two elements. One is, I think, an intense eastern area of operation around the sort of Donbass region of Ukraine, where there continues to be intense fighting uh, between Russian and Ukrainian forces. Now, a lot of that is, in essence, a continuation of the tension that has existed really from 2014-15 onwards, where Russia actively cultivated separated forces and has made, I think, a very clear attempt to try and section off that part of Ukraine and seek to further consolidate, if you will, its territorial foothold. The other element of this uh, conflict partly involves the Black Sea and Russian attempts to blockade Ukraine uh, so that, uh, for example, things like essential food supplies are disrupted. And of course, I suppose, as part of this sort of the broadening out of the conflict, there has, of course, been periodic shelling and attacks of some of the major cities uh, around Ukraine, of course, including the capital, Kyiv. And what time frame do you anticipate for the war? I know that's a bit of a difficult question. Well, I think that, you know, in a way we can answer this by saying what isn't going to happen. So when when the conflict uh, began, and I think we should be very clear, this is a continuation of hostilities against Ukraine following the annexation of Crimea in 2014. But let's call it the second phase of an intense uh, ground force invasion of Ukraine. Of course, we, we should remember that initially... President Putin described this as a, uh, a special military operation that uh, he thought that might be over within literally days. So in other words, that the government in Kyiv would simply give in and hand over the keys to the city and the state in a very short period of time. I think the key moment will be this coming winter. And I think this is where, for example, uh, we'll have all the ongoing disruption and intense uh, bombardment of Ukraine, which by that stage would have lasted 10 months. Then we've got to, of course, factor in the colder winter months, 
where we might have further disruption to essential energy supplies. And of course, by that stage, we have also had cost of living crises across the world, disruption to things like food and other supply chains. And I suspect President Putin will be hoping that by that stage, Ukraine will simply be exhausted. And of course, all the goodwill around Ukraine will also dried up. So I think that's the key thing. And that's something that President Zelensky has also recognized, that he thinks really the next five to six months are absolutely crucial uh, in terms of where we go next. Mike, with this level of uncertainty over outcome and even duration, what impact is this likely to have on energy security? Well, the first thing I want to do is define energy security because it's a term that's being banded around um, without a a lot of explanation. Um, I mean, a simple definition of energy security is secure and affordable access to energy services. And there are really two dimensions to that. One is what we would call physical security of supply. Can we actually get access to the energy supplies that we need to, to run our economies? The second element is around affordability. The price that we have to pay to get that access has to be affordable for consumers, industry, and the economy more generally. So we're most concerned with physical and price security. And we could add, in the current context, a third dimension that we might call geopolitical security of supply. In other words, does that supply come from countries that uh, whose actions might compromise our foreign policy objectives? You know, and in the current context, of course, that that is also a critical component because it's the actions of Russia, it's Russia's unlawful invasion of Ukraine that has triggered the cl- the current energy security crisis. But Together with that, we see both a physical and and a price security uh, problem. The actual ability to secure access to the oil and gas and coal that we need and the price that we're going to have to pay for it. Um, And you ask, how long is this going to last? Uh, The first thing we need to appreciate there is that if if we think back to this time last year, um, as the global economy started to come out of uh, lockdown, Uh, What we saw there was a surge in demand for energy um, and the energy system for a variety of reasons struggled to keep up with that demand. And so we had a a price crisis, a global price crisis um, going through the summer into the autumn, even before we saw the actions of Russia in February, um, making a a difficult situation an awful lot worse. so the, the point I want to make there is that the global, global markets are tight. There is limited supply and surging demand. Um, and that situation has been compounded by the consequences of Russia's war in Ukraine. Russia is the largest ex- exporter of energy if you add up oil, gas, coal um, on global markets. And, if, and Europe's attempts to reduce its reliance on Russian energy imports are going to have a significant impact on price, I would say, for at least the next two to three years, if not not longer. For example, in the case of the gas market, I think it's accepted now that we're not going to see things ease until after 2025, and we can discuss the reasons for that later. Oil may be able to just adjust more quickly, um, but prices are high, um, and there are complications in terms of the role that Russia plays in the OPEC Plus agreement. But uh, Oil is generally what we would call more fungible. It's easy to find alternative sources to substitute, um, and it's also a lot more transportable. So the challenges for oil and gas are quite different. And again, we can discuss that later. On, on, you know, the other thing to consider is that very high prices usually drive efficiency. 
So, you know, people start to consume less and what and worry about the efficiency of the appliances that they have, the cars that they drive, um, but also demand destruction, by which we mean people forego the energy services that those that, that the oil and gas is providing. So people may drive less, they may fly less, industry may shut down operations, it may reduce capacity. Um, all of that res- results in reduced economic activity. And that's why there's the concern that these very high prices may result in economic recession. And we know that economic recession drives down energy demand. And we can see that from you know, the global financial crisis back in 2008. And of course, the impact of, of lockdown itself. Um, so I think that the short answer is this is going to be a very difficult situation for a few years to come. We've already, in in part, answered my next question uh, by your comment about limited supply um, and surging demand. Um, can you give some other um, explanation and answer to why does conflict affect energy security? Well, I think there's the concern about the impact of conflict itself on the on the energy infrastructure. You know, so if we take the case of Ukraine, Ukraine is a critical transit state for Russian gas to 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 move into into southern European markets. Um, and Ukraine also has a lot of gas storage, which is used traditionally to supply gas into Europe, particularly in the winter months. So there have been concerns that the gas infrastructure itself may be impacted, um, may, you know, may, may be damaged. So far, that has not happened. And that's probably because it's in Russia's financial interest to keep the gas flowing. Um, but there have been adjust, adjustments made to the, to the level of gas, the direction of gas flow, and there have been problems on other pipelines that we'll, we can come to in, in a minute. So I think what we need to look at, you know, is what is really happening now, particularly on, in gas. Um, I think there are three things happening that relate to the issues that, you, that you've raised. One is sanctions themselves. Okay, so the, the West generally defined as imposing sanctions on, on, on Russia and wanting to limit um, imports of oil and gas. Now, unfortunately, w- what is happening in a tight market is all that is doing is putting the price up, which means although the physical flow of oil and gas may be limited, may be lower, Russia's making more money. And there's not a lot we can do about that. There is discu- There has been discussion this weekend at the G7 meeting about putting a price cap on oil, but I, I just don't see how that's going to work. So, no, sanctions directly or indirectly are reducing the willingness of importers to buy Russian oil, gas, and coal, but not all. And as we'll see later, there are some countries who are are quite comfortable continuing to buy and to benefit from it. Secondly, Russia is cutting off the supply of gas to European consumers. Um, And this is as a result of Russia's requirement that uh, imports of gas be paid for in rubles, which hasn't been the way it's been done in the past. And and some companies and countries have, have found ways to do that. Others have not. And those that have not have seen their gas supply cut off essentially Um, and so the amount of gas flowing from Europe into Europe from Russia has gone down and most recently in the last week or so we've had another problem arrive which is to do with Nord Stream 2 Nord Stream 1 which is the the, the gas pipeline that now bypasses Belarus and and, uh, Poland delivering Russian gas through the Baltic Sea directly to Germany um, and the compressor stations, which push the gas through the pipeline, built by German company Siemens, um, they, they are sent off for maintenance. Um, they have a number of spare compressors. The spare compressors are in Canada being serviced, but they're under Canadian sanctions and Russia can't get them back. 
um, which means that there are only two two compressors working on the pipeline, and that has reduced uh, the amount of gas flowing through the pipeline. And of course, Russia's saying, well, that's a consequence of your sanctions. You know, technically, we cannot continue to maintain production in Nord Stream um, at capacity. All of these things add up to a lower flow of gas into Europe from, from Russia at the very time when Europe wants to fill up its gas storage to prepare for next next uh, winter. And Russia, of course, has no interest in helping them to do that um, because it wants to profit from this situation. You know, So there's a whole slew of issues and problems which are, you know, everyone is sort of almost tippy-toeing around thinking, well, what happens if the gas is completely shut down? And, and last week, the International Energy Agency um, said to, Europe, to European states, you really do need to prepare a contingency plan for there being a shutdown of Russian gas. You know, in totality, for how long, we just don't know. Um, but you know, that is the kind of situation we're in. All of these issues out there, you know, te technical problems, you know, political actions, can re are reducing the supply of gas and putting Europe in a very precarious situation. Klaus, Russia failed to capture Kiev in the first phase of the war. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation, actually, that um, President Putin expected it to fall in a matter of days. Um, why wasn't the capital captured? I, I think for several reasons. First of all, you know, it's worth remembering Ukraine is a very, very large country. It's not Crimea. You know, this is this is a, a large country. It's the largest country in Europe. It is considerably bigger than other large countries in Europe, such as France and Spain and Germany. And it also requires, particularly if you want to occupy a large country with a population of around 40 million people, most of whom do not welcome your presence, it requires supply chains and a kind of organizational acumen that the Russian armed forces clearly don't possess. So I think what happened was, was as the Russian forces advanced, they realized very quickly that uh, they were dangerously exposed and were uh, very quickly as well uh, found to their cost that it was comparatively straightforward to attack uh, those Russian forces from literally all directions. The other thing that was quite helpful was they launched the invasion in February, March, where Ukraine had had a relatively mild winter by Ukrainian standards. So without the help, I suppose, of frost and frozen ground, those invading forces by and large traveled using, for example, roads. And so that meant as well, they were even more exposed and easier to attack. I think the other factor worth saying, and it's always an issue in conflict, by and large, the country that is being attacked, particularly if it's relatively well equipped and organized, will always have greater motivation to resist that attack than an invading force. And I think, by the way, it, just in general, I think there's a kind of disconnect between what President Putin thinks is happening on the ground in Ukraine and what is happening in reality as well. So it, it was already a sort of confused situation, but one I think was made worse from the Russian point of view by a sort of a fantastical sense that this was all going to be very straightforward. Mike, in 2021, two-fifths of gas Europeans burned and more than a quarter of the EU's imported crude oil came from Russia. 
Now that the EU leaders plan to block some of that Russian oil that you've just mentioned uh, by the end of the year, um, how will the continent adapt? Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, oil and gas are very different. And, and oil is a much more fungible, transportable resource. You know, so, so for some countries, particularly those with, with coastlines and access to, to seaborne deliveries of crude oil, um, you know, it's a matter of finding alternative sources of supply. But in a, t- in a tight market, that's going to come at a cost. Um, but for others, the, the, the harsh reality of geography is that they are sort of the landlocked states in Central Europe uh, are going to struggle to get access to that, that seaborne crude. But more importantly, they have an energy infrastructure, refineries and, and the like, which are actually plugged directly into pipelines delivering gas from Russia. And that's a legacy of the Soviet period when the USSR supplied cheap oil and gas and coal to the satellite states in Central Europe or Eastern Europe, as it was then described. So Hungary would be a case in point. And this this is one of the reasons why there is a, you know, a lack of unity within the European Union um, as to how quickly um, they can reduce the, you know, their reliance on Russian oil. The same is true of gas, um, that it's going to be difficult to pivot away. And of course, in a, in a tight market, you know, it means that others may, may, may go without. Um, so I think it's a very difficult thing to do. And the timeframes are really, I think, impractical. Um, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's to say oil is easier than gas. With gas, I think it's simply not possible to pivot away as quickly as the politicians would like us to. And as Europe pivots away from Russian oil and gas, where do you think it will go in the future? I imagine it will be sold to someone. Well, at the moment, we have we see evidence that you know China, which has been a, 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 you know one of the largest non-European customers, is buying more. Um, there are there's a pipeline connection um, to China, um, but also seaborne exports out of the Russian Far East. India has stepped up its imports, um, and one of the reasons for this is that you know because of all the sanctions. And also self-sanctioning, where where companies and countries are, you know, although there are not sanctions in place, this, you know, determined not to take Russian oil. Um, Russian oil is trading at a significant discount, you know, upwards of thirty percent discount, and therefore, you know, if you if you have not got sanctions on Russia, it makes good business sense to import that cheaper oil, because at the end of the day, you face your own energy security challenges. And I think one of the issues that Europe has not really considered is that its actions are essentially exporting its energy insecurity to other countries. You know, it, first by driving up the price, but secondly, by you know, diverting supplies that might otherwise have gone to those other countries because European customers are able to pay a higher price. So I think that's leading to a, a lot of disquiet among, on the part of other countries, you know, just because for many places in the world, they see this as a European war Europe's problem, but the consequences they are having to pay, and it's causing real problems domestically. It's making that bad situation of a tight market and a high price even more difficult because they can't actually physically secure the sources of oil and gas they need. But for some, as I say, it's an opportunity to to, uh, to secure discounted prices. It's not that straightforward, though. It does mean that Russian oil is having to, to travel further, um, which has an impact on the availability of shipping and the cost of shipping. Um, there are also problems around insurance with ships and, and the like, and the, the rights of transit in certain parts of the world. So it is making it harder for, to Russia, for Russia to find markets. Russian gas production has fallen. 
But we come back to this this issue time and again that actually, although the physical volumes have fallen, the very high prices mean that Russia still con- continues to make more than enough money to cover its budgetary requirements. Klaus, does this, along with the 5,000 plus sanctions, weaken Russia as a su- superpower in the long run? Well, I think we have to be very clear that Russia is um, an economic and military superpower. Now, that may strike some people as surprising, particularly the idea that Russia is an economic superpower, because its economy is about the size of Spain. So we're not talking about an enormous economy compared to the United States, Japan, Germany, uh, and so on. But we are talking about an economy that has absolutely benefited from oil and gas revenues in particular. So one of the things worth bearing in mind is that President Putin deliberately built up a foreign currency asset base so that it could, if as as was expected, withstand some of the pressure that inevitably sanctions has placed on the Russian economy. I think the other thing to bear in mind that Russia for quite some time has actually mobilized itself in the expectation that it would seek further pain from sanctions. And the other thing as well, that it adds sort of further nuance to the argument that the Russian economy will be brought to its knees as a consequence of Ukraine, is that Russia actually, way before Crimea, way before the Ukrainian land invasion, was also starting to pivot towards China and India. So there's been a very deliberate strategy of, if you will, diversifying risk by looking to other economies, other markets, to ensure that actually revenue streams were not entirely shut down. Now, the complicating factor, particularly around China and India, is that those who wish to do business with Russia may, of course, suffer from secondary sanctions imposed by the European Union and the United States. So it's not risk-free for either Russia, China, or India But there's no doubt the Russian economy, the Russian middle classes has been hurt by sanctions. I mean, you know, some listeners will be aware of the funny stories about, you know, Russians not being able to import Botox. But there's a more serious side to this, which is, of course, that the Russian people, particularly the less privileged, will always bear the brunt of sanctions as opposed to the more privileged. So I think it's it's a mixed story. But it clearly doesn't help Russia in the long term to have this barrage of sanctions imposed against it. The author, Tim Marshall, states in one of his books that Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar, accelerated the expansion of early Russia to push past the Urals down to the, uh, sorry, up to the Arctic and south to the Caspian Sea. And that was uh, to create a, a partial buffer zone and a hinterland and, and strategic depth um, to fall back into in case of invasion. Um, How does the landscape of Russia influence Kremlin decision-making? Well, I think Tim Marshall and I don't necessarily agree on the role of geography. So I think Tim Marshall, in his admittedly very successful books, has sort of rather propagated the view that geography has this sort of fixed quality, that you can read off world history by simply referring to physical geography. Uh, For professional geographers, we probably think of that as a form of environmental determinism that doesn't sit very well with the sort of academic work we do and the kind of the way in which we teach geography in university. 
But that point aside, let me just um, reflect on a couple things that I think are relevant here. Number one, President Putin has moved on from talking about special military operations and denazification and chosen to speak about a sort of czarist legacy. And so one of the arguments being propagated in Russia is that Ukraine is part of a larger Russian empire and that it makes no sense whatsoever to think of Russia and Ukraine as separate entities. Now, for Ukrainians, of course, this would appear to be an outrageous argument that seems to suggest that Ukrainian selfhood, national identity, language culture doesn't matter because this is all part of a greater Russia uh, constituency. But on the other hand, I also think we shouldn't lose track of the more contemporary developments that really should uh, be bore in mind when we actually try to make sense of where we are now. So President Putin has been very clear that he considers the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 to be a geopolitical disaster. So I think there is unquestionably an, an air of nostalgia that it informs this invasion of Ukraine. Secondly, I think as a consequence of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia lost a sense of what it used to call its near abroad. And this was a highly cultivated sense that there was a strategic space running from the Arctic all the way down to the Caucasus, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Central Asian republics, where Russia had a very powerful incentive to ensure that this was a safe operating space. NATO expansion, particularly after 1991, has clearly collapsed that sense of safe operating space. And what we've seen now, of course, is Russia pushing back aggressively in all kinds of areas along this kind of arc that I described a moment ago. And I think also actively cultivating a sense that it will have buffer zones, it will have a kind of new near abroad, and it will once again resurrect the idea that there is a bastion in the north, where, of course, the nuclear northern fleet is stationed. So I think one of the things that's really important to bear in mind is this is not just about Ukraine. It never has been. It is about the Arctic. It's about the Baltics. It is about the eastern Mediterranean. Russia sees that there is potentially an arc of crisis that it has to be prepared to repel. Uh, in order to ensure its long-term regime and federation survival. And that means, for example, cynically, President Putin has also used the idea of a Russian-speaking peoples as a justification or a proxy, if you will, to say, well, we will intervene in all kinds of places because we are protecting our fellow Russian peoples. So, by the way, that has interesting implications for places like Cyprus that actually has a Russian-speaking community in towns like Larnaca. So I think we, we need to be very wary of where these sorts of arguments lead us and how it becomes a sort of, if you will, a manifesto for spatial expansionism and the domination of place. Mike, most Former USSR states can be divided into three ways, um, those that are neutral, pro-Western or pro-Russian. Can a neighbouring country to Russia ever be neutral with energy dependency? 
I don't, I'm not sure energy dependency is the issue, really. I think it's kind of looking at the different roles that some of the, these sort of post-Soviet states play in the global energy system and in their and their relationship to Russia. You know, um, for example, Ukraine and Belarus are both important transit states for Russian oil and gas. Uh, you know, particularly oil in the case of of Belarus, gas more so in the case of of uh, uh, Ukraine. Sorry, more in the case of gas. And actually, Russia has spent, and Gazprom has spent a lot of money building pipelines, gas pipelines, to circumvent Ukraine to deal with that transit risk. Um, and it has been a source of conflict between Russia and Ukraine um, through the years. Um, you know, it's also been an issue with Belarus at times. Um, and I think Putin's current focus is really on this sort of notion of a Slavic heartland, which is rel- you know, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Um, now, if you, if you look to the rest of the so-called near abroad, as as Russians talk about it, that you know their their sphere of influence, they're obviously concerned about the actions and influence of other states, you know, in those countries in the near abroad. So, if you take a state like Azerbaijan with its own oil and gas production, it is a, it's a source of competition in some ways because it's supplying oil and gas into European markets. Um, so, you know, for, for for the Azeris, there's a difficult balance to play here. Um, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan are uh, in a similar sort of situation in that they are gas. Kazakhstan's a major oil producer um, and its oil exports transit through Russia um, to, the Bla- to, a, to the Black Sea, to a port just north of Novorossiysk. And therefore, getting its oil out is dependent on the ability to continue to transit oil through Russia. Um, and Kazakhstan has its own domestic political issues that, you know, uh, not that long ago resulted in Russian troops coming to the aid of the, of the government. Uzbekistan is a major producer of gas, and both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan have relation, a stronger relationship with China. And it may be in the future, you know, if Russia seeks to pivot away even further and build more gas pipelines from Siberia to China, that it may start to see competition between those Central Asian states. Um, difficult, to, difficult to say. Um, but I think there's a very difficult balancing act for many of these states to play because they may, they may come to think that actually Russia's actions are not in their best interest. But on the other hand, they can't afford to upset the Kremlin. Um, but you know, Russia is extremely stretched in, in engaging in its war in Ukraine. Um, so you know, their ability to exert power and influence elsewhere uh, must be compromised. I mean, Moldova is, you know, is the extreme case because, of course, Moldova is seen as the, you know, the, the next um, item on the hit list for the Kremlin. But, I, but again, I think you know, that it, its proximity to Europe is going to make it very difficult for Russia to, to engage there in the same way. If not, you know, they're already there, um, but I think this, you know, the cost-benefit analysis from the Kremlin's perspective is probably quite different. Am I right in thinking the UK is an outlier in Europe in terms of that we have a relatively uh, low dependence on Russia, Russian oil and gas? I guess you, the UK is now an outlier in Europe in all sorts of ways <laughs> post-Brexit. But, but yes, that is true. Um, if, you, if you look at the, look at the, uh, the statistics, you know, we only get about 8% of oil imports and 4% of uh, gas imports from Russia. I mean, our oil situation is a bit strange because I think many people in the UK think, you know, well, we produce oil in the North Sea, and that makes us, you know, not so far from self-sufficient, but we've got a lot of our own oil, but we export the vast majority of that oil. 
um, and then have to import it from elsewhere. So Russia is one of the countries we, we import a modest amount of, of crude oil. We also import uh, products, particularly diesel. Um, but we can find alternative sources of those. But again, we know you're playing on a global market with high prices. The gas imports really are only in the form of liquefied natural gas that comes from the projects on the Yamal Peninsula in Siberia, the Novatec project. Um, and that's no longer arriving. I mean, again, even those you know, so when sanctions were imposed on Russian, Russian ships coming into, into uh, UK ports, even before then, the unions refused to unload Russian cargoes. And those cargoes, though, are not, they're not coming to the UK, but they're still going elsewhere in Europe at the moment. That may change. Uh, there is a certain amount of Russian gas that comes through our connector pipelines from Europe, but we have no idea um, what that is, and it's a rarely mod relatively modest amount. But I, I don't. we shouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security because of this limited physical dependence on Russia. You know, and, and again, I think our politicians are not helping us here. Um, the reality is we are totally exposed to global prices. You know, and they do point that out when it comes to discussing the cost of living crisis, that, you know, this is a global problem. Um, and they're right. And the way that we price and secure our oil and gas means that if we want to get the necessary oil and gas, we have to pay the going rate and we have to outcompete others. And that's the problem we face in, in the gas market at the moment, you know, that, uh, we, you know, talk about alternative sources of supply in, the, at the, in a minute. Um, the bigger problem for us in the UK is not our physical dependence on Russian supply, particularly when it comes to gas. It's our lack of storage capacity domestically. And we don't have storage capacity because historically we just opened the taps from the North Sea and that brought more gas. We then did develop some storage and we do have sh some short-term storage. We developed one largest longer-term storage facility at a depleted gas field in, in the North Sea at Rough, but that closed recently. And they're now revisiting that. But because we don't have storage, and we do actually have quite a lot of capacity to import liquefied natural gas, what's been happening is that gas has been coming into the UK, transiting through our pipeline system and our two interconnectors that link the UK gas market to Belgium and the Netherlands, and flowing into Europe to fill up their storage. You know, so... So one of the things that's been been kind of frustrating in some ways is that you know, the European Union, the European Commission in particular, seeing you know an EU solution to what is a European-wide problem, and the UK is actually part of the solution, despite Brexit. And I think there needs to be greater cooperation between the UK and the European Union over the role that we play in guaranteeing their energy security. Um, so I think just focusing on physical dependence is, 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 you know, it's a, as ever, it's a, it's a broader issue. I'd also say, you know, the UK is totally exposed to the EU's energy diplomacy with Russia, you know, and if things break down and there's a physical shortage, the price we have to pay will undoubtedly go up, you know, so this coming winter, you know, the prices will be determined by what's happening in the Europe, European gas market, which is broader and wider than the EU gas market. And we are very much part of that. You've touched upon the UK being overexposed. Can I ask, in the future, will LNG be the solution if we can import more from the US or Qatar, perhaps? Now, I alluded to the fact we have these tight markets. And I think the, the, the thing about LNG is that it, it's a very capital intensive 
process you know so to to, to build a you know lng facility to you know to to cool the gas uh, and make it mobile put it on tankers you know is billions of dollars you know 20 to 30 billion dollars and you know four five six years to build um, and what that means is that we, at any moment in time, we know how much liquefaction capacity there is in the global LNG industry. And we know what plants are being built. Um, and we also know which plants are likely to build, be built in the near term. So when you add all that up, we know that there's going to be very limited amount of new LNG supply on the global market between now and 2025-26. Okay. After that date, there's going to be a surge in new LNG capacity, in part because of the expansion of Qatari LNG, but also because of plants being built in the US. But the reality now is that we have a limit amount of LNG. And the way that Europe secures its LNG means what we are sort of playing in a spot short-term market where there's almost a finite amount of gas will be available as liquefied natural gas this winter. So it becomes a zero-sum game where the highest bidders will win. And now we saw a couple of weeks ago, there was a fire at one of the larger LNG plants in the United States at Freeport LNG, which is, I think, about 20% of the US export capacity at the moment. And that's going to be out of, out of operation for you know, two or three months. And that's had an impact it's also interesting we had an impact on the domestic price in the US because the domestic gas price in the US, natural gas price, was going up because of this demand to send gas to Europe, much to the annoyance of domestic consumers and politicians. But now that the, the, the capacity to export has been reduced by this fire, the gas price in the United States has gone down. So there's some really interesting things happening, interesting from a sort of the gas industry perspective, perhaps less so from the perspective of, of consumers. And the general public, um, but so so you know, in terms of longer term, say the second half of this decade, it's quite possible that there's going to be a surplus of LNG on the market, because a lot of new construction projects will come into 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 production, and we already see more projects being stimulated at the moment by the very high price. Although many investors are wary of, of, of a lock-in to a high carbon source of energy, there's no doubt that the current crisis is also you know, pro prompting some additional investment. So you know, in the second half of this decade, we will be potentially in a very different supply situation, um, notwithstanding uh, Europe, if Europe is serious about not importing a lot of Russian gas, that's a lot of LNG demand to soak up, but the market could return to some form of equilibrium around a lower price. And because we have a large amount of LNG import capacity um, in the UK, um, we could import that LNG to compensate for falling production from the North Sea, um, notwithstanding the government's hope to actually manage to convince others to invest in the North Sea. That's going to take time. In the backdrop to all of this, of course, is that Gas demand needs to fall, not increase. It has been falling. It's fallen about 25% in the last 20 years. And the government's own energy security strategy has said that gas demand in the UK will fall by 40% by the end of this decade. I'm not sure how they've come up with those numbers. But you can see that there's an issue of the relationship between domestic gas demand, domestic production, and the level of import dependence. And at the moment, we have a system where you know, Norwegian pipeline gas is supplying the bulk of our imports, but LNG is increasingly important. Um, and that's why we're exposed to this high price at the moment.
I think we've uh, covered this question already, Klaus, but can I ask you, what are the factors in your mind that have contributed to the invasion of Ukraine? Perhaps as a summary. <laughs> yes, so I, I think if, if we want to make sense of the invasion of Ukraine, rather than going either back to Tsarist times and looking for those explanations that Tim Marsh and others might ask us to, and rather than going right up to the contemporary moment and saying what was going on in 21-22, let me just say something about 2014 and why it matters. So just before the annexation of Crimea in March 24, the Ukrainian people um, had effectively voted out of office uh, President Yankovic who had uh, publicly rejected the idea that Ukraine should seek to further integrate with the European Union. So between 2014 and 21-22, there was a growing, I think, body of evidence and public opinion in Ukraine that was clearly moving towards ever closer integration with the European Union and possibly NATO. Now, one of the reasons why the Russians acted on Crimea in 2014 was they were very worried that Ukraine might get a fast-track application to both EU and NATO secured. And the last thing they were going to tolerate was their naval presence in Crimea being potentially compromised by Ukraine's, if you like, change of status with regards to NATO. So that was that was uh, annexed deliberately. And then, of course, there was a deliberate attempt to escalate um, conflict in the eastern part of Ukraine. Now, the other thing the Russians did between 2015 onwards was to bombard Ukraine with cyber attacks to intensify disinformation and to try and seed as much discord and instability as possible in Ukraine. So to make the job of President Poroshenko, and now, of course, Zelensky, who was elected more recently, as hard as possible. So what we've seen in the last seven years or so is a very deliberate attempt to rock the foundations of the Ukrainian state to ensure that it is divided as possible, and that partly has been about a very deliberate attempt to cultivate a sense that Ukrainian and Russian-speaking communities have these distinct interests and orbits, which for many Ukrainians makes no sense whatsoever, because you know they see no contradiction, as President Zelensky has said, I am my Russian is my first language but I am very proud to be a Ukrainian. And of course, many U Ukrainians speak both languages equally fluently, as well as, of course, English and a host of other languages as well. So you, you can see this very, very concerted effort, 2014 onwards, to undermine Ukraine uh, from, from land, from sea, from air, via the internet. It's been a concerted assault on the country. And that's why I think it's really important we see the annexation of Crimea in 2014, as the start of a long conflict. Finally, what are the ramifications of this war? Mike, you mentioned at the start the impacts uh, being on access, affordability and security. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question, you know, uh, and it really, it, at the centre of this is you know, how firm 
is Europe's determination to move away from Russian oil and gas imports. You know, there, it, there is a technical problem here in that there are still a lot of long-term contracts in place between Europe, European energy companies and Gazprom to supply Russian gas for, for many years to come. Uh, but you know, if we do get to a situation, say by 2030, where Europe's not importing any Russian oil and gas, that is a significant you know, change in the global energy system. Um, now, whether we're satisfying that the, the gas demand by finding alternative sources of supply, but I suspect it will be part of that. But also, if you look at the, you know, the European Union's Repower EU and its Fit for 55 programs, a large part of the solution actually is to accelerate the decarbonization of the energy system and reduce the amount of gas demand in total. You know, so, so in the short term, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that you know that need to to secure energy and particularly electricity um, is resulting in European countries turning on coal fire power stations. Even in the UK, we've only got three left, but the government is talking about you know, keeping them ready and able to generate this coming winter. Um, and so that might mean in the short term that one of the consequences is a higher level of carbon intensity from our energy in Europe, because, you know, if you like, security is Trump's sustainability. Uh, but maybe in the longer run, you know, energy security becomes a force together with sustainability to accelerate decarbonization to reduce fossil fuel demand. You know, so maybe we'd get to 2030 with a higher, no, with a lower level of fossil fuel consumption in Europe and a higher level of renewable power generation than might have been the case. I think nuclear is also an important part of this puzzle, um, and it's another issue for the UK because all but one of our currently operating nuclear power stations will sh have shut down, um, and only one new one is being built at the moment. You know, so we do have a power generation gap. The hope is that that gap is closed by the build out of renewables, but then natural gas at the moment is playing a critical role uh, as, as backup flexibility in that in that power generation system. So I think it could be a force for a positive force in driving decarbonization, but I think that you know getting there is going to be very difficult. Um, and I think because of that, you know, there is always the temptation. You know, depending on the outcome of the war in Ukraine, which I don't see anyone having a beneficial outcome from, um, th that we may find ourselves sort of sleepwalking back into a continued reliance on Russian gas, certainly, um, but with a determination to get away from it as quickly as possible. Klaus, Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.